welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. Good morning. Uh, this is the last and final part of our First Peter series. So my goal and charge this morning is to wrap up this book. Uh, if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to read in verse 8. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to end in verse 14, which is the end of the book. So if you have a Bible, turn to it. If you have a phone and you get an app, look there. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 14. It reads as following. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen with the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God stand fast in it she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings and so does my son Mark greet one another with a kiss of love Lord, help us understand this text and help us understand how this ties into the overall theme of this book. And I pray we walk out of here with a fuller understanding of what it means to resist the enemy in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a, lion, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's the big ideal, that there's a devil. And, and when it comes to suffering, the devil roars. Um, why a lion? Or why a devil? Um, why this, this metaphor? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Why a lion? Uh, a lion is one of the predators that can truly strike fear in its prey. As John Piper said, um, when a lion roars, the intent of it is to communicate power or fear in its victim. And if you remember, the overall theme of this book is the theme of suffering. And so when Peter talks about a lion roaring, the goal of a lion is to strike fear. And oftentimes, the greatest times of fear and insecurity in our life comes in times of suffering, right? And Peter is saying here that the devil roars, particularly loudest in moments of suffering in our life. In our culture, the enemy roars socially. Uh, 
and we all know what happened a week ago in Orlando. The devil roared in the Mike Brown case. The devil roared in the Trayvon Martin issue. There's been a lot of race issues. There's been a lot of religious issues. There's been a lot of political issues. The enemy tends to roar. The devil can roar behaviorally, right? Like oftentimes we live in this if-then kind of Christianity, if I do certain things, then certain things are supposed to happen in my life. Uh, in John chapter 1, uh, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, and the Word became flesh. That Word in the Greek is logos. And for, for Greek philosophy, the logos meant everything because it was a way of making the world make sense. And it was built on this principle of the if-then. If you did these certain things, if you subscribe to these certain things, you can control your universe. And then for Jewish folks or very religious folks, they thought based upon behavior and keeping the covenants and the law, it can invoke a certain um, response from God in terms of your favor. And so, and so oftentimes what we see, even in our own life, that most of our circumstances that we assume we can control is based upon how we behave, how we subscribe to God's scripture, right? How we live our particular life. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it said to the Greeks, the gospel uh, is a stumbling, uh, is foolishness, and to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. Why? Because to the Greek, it didn't make sense that everything in their world that seemed so complex be tied back down to this one simple person, Jesus. And yet for the Jews who who had a very complex system built in the Old Covenant based upon behavior to really rest and relax and find your total identity, security, and assurance in God through Christ in terms of what he'd done, that was foolishness. I'm sorry, that was a stumbling block. Right? The gospel is scandalous when you fully understand that there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more or less. It's it's complete. It's done. It's what Christ did at the cross, that God doesn't hold your past, present, or future sin against you. That's ridiculous. That's scandalous that your life and who you are is credited to your account because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. And so oftentimes the enemy looks at your life and says, see, look at you. Look at your life. Look at how you think. Look at, the, look at how you behave. Look at how you you know, conduct your life. It is not befitting of a Christian, and you can get weighed down, and yet the gospel comes and undercuts that because it's good news. The enemy could come and roar historically. We see in our world, in terms of history, whether through genocide or slavery or the Holocaust, you name it, oftentimes Christianity had been underneath that. And yet you have people that say, see, there's no way Christianity can be true because it has been one of the biggest instruments of injustice to so many different people groups around the world. And so the enemy roars by trying to get us to doubt the scriptures or God's character or whatever. The enemy roars. He might roar in your life just personally, right? Like, like you come from humble beginnings and um, 
Uh, in terms of your, your family and your family's family, like you just see generational patterns that you don't seem to be able to break in your life. And he says, look, you're just going to be your dad. You're just going to be just like your mom. You're going to have a marriage just like your parents. And the devil begins to war as you look at your life. But how do you overcome the devil when he roars? How do you deal with suffering? When the devil comes, well, I have a few things to share from the text that Peter wants us to understand. Number one, the first thing you do is put the devil in his proper place. And what I mean by putting the devil in his proper place, depending on your brand of Christianity or non-Christianity, we can either play up the devil to the point that we feel like the devil's attacking us in every area of our life and we start worshiping the devil and the devil becomes bigger than God himself and so we play him up or we play down the devil, right? And we say the devil and evil and all that's just a figment of our imagination. Evil does not, it's just spiritual psychosomatic, right? You think therefore it is and if you change the way you think then you realize that evil doesn't exist. And so some of us deify the devil and some of us d diminish the devil. And, 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 and depending upon which of those tenets that we subscribe to, much of our life begins to uh, be shaped around that. For those that deify him, you need to understand this. Number one, the devil is not omnipresent. So when somebody says the devil's attacking me, you got to understand that he's not like God. God, yeah, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. The devil isn't. Now, in, in Ephesians, it talks about a weapons of a warfare, right? There is a spiritual warfare, and there is a network of, of, uh, that the devil does have, uh, and it's very sophisticated. How does it work? I don't know. you got to read Pierce in the Darkness to figure that out. Anybody remember Pierce in the Darkness? Well, all we know is that there is a sophisticated network, but the devil can't be attacked in me and then Clark and then someone else, right? He's just not omnipotent or omnipresent like God is. So if he tempts, he tempts by what's there in your life. It's like what T.D. Jakes, this one line that I love about him, he says, the biggest enemy in you is the enemy within me, right? It's the enemy inside your soul that the devil comes and tempts and entices and draws away. The scripture says in James chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When, when tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And so, yes, does the enemy come and tempt? Yes. But it's not something outside of you. It's something inside of you that we are drawn and enticed and pulled away. So that's the thing you need to understand for people that overplay the devil. He's not omnipresent. And when he does tempt, he tempts what's there in your heart. But those that diminish the devil, um, 
we got to understand that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving or the unbeliever. And in order for us to truly become a Christian and to know who Jesus is, we got to understand that we've been blinded, that we're dead, that we're incapable of responding, that it takes the sovereign grace of God to open our eyes to who he is, to have that epiphany, right, to let that light come on, right, to enter the matrix and to see life and the world for what it is. And when your light, light comes on, beautiful things begin to happen. So that first thing is just understanding, you know, it's just, it's, it's just understanding uh, the devil and, and putting him in his proper place. But the second thing is, is, is putting his power in, in his proper place. Look with me in verse 8 through 10. It says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to this eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In verse 11 it says this, to him be the power forever. So in your suffering, who has the power? Who's in charge of your suffering? The devil or God? Satan or God? Well, it just depends on how you look at the scriptures. It's both and. There's tension. It's like when you think about who killed Jesus, well, on the one hand, the Roman soldiers killed Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, it said it was God that killed Jesus. So which is it? When you look in the book of Lamentations, on the one hand, here's Jeremiah prophesying and then weeping over the city after it had gone through destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. And yet at the end of chapter 2, he starts saying, was this not from your hand, O God? So who was it? Was it the Babylonians that, that, that destroyed Israel and took them into captivity, or was it God? The scriptures has very shifty feet. Who's in charge of our suffering? Who was in charge of the suffering of our Savior? Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from people, like from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And then in verse 10 it says, yet it was the Lord, Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And so on the one hand, um, Jesus is crucified on a cross, and, he's, and it's done by you know, you see in Acts chapter 4 by Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers, and yet at the same time it says it was ordained by God, that it pleased God to crush his son. And so what does this mean as it relates to our own suffering? Does this suffering that we experience in our life, is it real and does it come from the devil? 
Or is it something that comes from God's hand? Or is it both? Because if you subscribe it only to the devil, then you'll be, over, then you'll be powerless to overcome it, and you won't see any good in it. But if you see it as something that's come from God's hand, then you realize that whatever power the devil has in your life is limited power. It's power on a leash. And it's not something that spins outside of God's control because if God is truly sovereign, that means everything in your life, down to the Starbucks coffee you drink in the morning, nothing, I mean nothing in your life will ever spin outside of God's sovereign power. He is in charge of everything. It's like this question that I ask people when you look at the scriptures, can you name anybody that God ever failed? Absolutely not. So why in the world would you think God would want to start with you? This is who God is. God, yes, the devil has a certain degree of power, but it's power on a leash. It's not the ultimate leash. It's not the ultimate power. God has the ultimate power. And yes, God even uses suffering and redirects it to make us holy and pure and sensitive and tender and loving and caring and compassionate and to produce all kind of amazing, wonderful stuff in our life. That's what Peter in the book is arguing. How do you deal with suffering? You can either get bitter or you can grow and allow God to do an amazing work in your life. If you see any part of your life as an instrument of sanctification in your life. So you got to put the devil in his proper place by neither under-worshipping or, or worshipping him, right? You've got to put his power in his proper place. That at the end of the day, it's God at work. He is sovereign. But the last thing here is, is that he said we've got to put our faith in its proper place. It says in verse 9, Resist him, standing firm in our faith. That's what suffering does. It, 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 it reveals where our faith and trust truly is. In suffering, you can either place your hope in you and try and control your circumstances and take matters into your own hands. In suffering, you can place your hope in things right? Like, and try and self-medicate and think that that's going to save you. Or you can put your faith in him. Romans 8, verse 31 through 32. Love this. It says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that God did not spare his son. He tore his son to shreds for you. And if that's true, how in the world are you going to trip 
that he doesn't care for you. Right, that God, would willing, God was willing to take his son and put him on a cross and crush him for you. How will he not, after all that, take care of your needs? That is the beauty of the gospel. That if Christ died for you, that he gave up everything to redeem and transform and work on behalf of you, and he did this on the cross, how will he not sustain you? (laughs) Right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all else will be added on to you. Why? Because Christ died. God provided everything for you. Will he not give you everything to sustain you? And that's what's on the floor. And when the devil roars in our life, the biggest temptation for us is to believe that God isn't going to bring us to the finish line. That we've got to bring ourselves, we've got to bring ourselves to the finish line ourselves. Now, I remember I got this hair brain ideal. I was 29 years old, I was putting on weight, I was long past my basketball career and I needed a challenge. So in the middle of the summer, I said, you know what, I'm gonna train. I'd heard about the Portland Marathon. So I said, I'm gonna train for the Portland Marathon. And I asked a buddy of mine, I said, man, would you train with me? He thought it was nuts. Because I'm not a basketball guy. I never ran more than like two or three miles in my entire life. I'm not built as a runner. I'm a first and go type of guy. Give me the ball, first and go, I can punch it in. But running miles, no. So I just said, well, let me just try this, push myself, see what, if I can get this thing done. And we started training. It was me and a buddy of mine, and he was lean, and I'm thick. He's thin, and I'm big boned, right? But we ran. And so every Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, Tuesday we ran you know, six to 10 miles. And then on Saturday, we would run 10 to 12 miles. And then we got it up. I was doing eight to 10 miles on Tuesday, Thursday. And on Saturday, I was doing 16 to 20 miles by the time I got within six weeks. And when October came, it was time. And I remember hearing that Oprah Oprah Winfrey ran the marathon in four hours and 40 minutes. I'm like, if I can't beat Oprah, If I cannot beat Oprah, I got problems. So in my mind, I'm saying I got to at least beat that four hour and 40 minute time. So I run the marathon. I'm 29 years old. And actually the first 20 miles, the adrenaline got me there, right? Just the high of, man, I'm in this marathon and I can do it. So when you get to 20 miles, You only got 6.2 miles to go. So in my brain, you think to yourself, I just did 20, 6.2 is nothing. Wrong. I felt like I was carrying an elephant the last 6.2 miles. And by the time I got to a mile, at 1.2 miles left, I had nothing left to give. And the only times I'd ever stopped was at the water stations, right? And that was a quick water, and I got to about, 
25 miles, and I was done. I just did not think I could do it, and I'll never forget a good friend of mine. His name was Tom Melby. Comes running out of the stands. <laughs> not the stands, but out of the crowd, grabs my arm, locks arms with me, and carries me. That last one point two, he's like, come on, bro. I'm walking, thinking I'm running. <laughs> and yet my man got me to the finish line. Against all the, I was ready to shut down. My body was done. I was tired. I felt like I was carrying an elephant. There was no way I could get there. And yet... The scripture says that God doesn't let you run the first 20 miles. He's with you the first 20 miles. And in the face of the obstacle, when you feel like that elephant's on your back and you can't get to the finish line, that is when God's grace and his love and his mercy really kicks in our life. That is the beauty of God that the scripture says in Psalms 34 that he is near to those that are broken like his love kicks in. It's like extra special, extra sweet in the moments like that. I'm just learning to now thank God through suffering because it's in those moments that you get to experience God's love and his grace and his, and his mercy in your life in a way that you can't otherwise. So how do you deal with suffering? Well, Peter says, with the help of Silas in verse 12, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What does it mean? This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. How do you stand in the grace of God in the face of suffering? Well, turn with me real quick, if you don't mind, to Luke 13. And this is how we stand fast in the grace of God. Luke 13. Love this story. Here's Jesus talking to the disciples. And he gives this true story that had happened in Jerusalem. He said, now there were some, there, now there were some present now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, just to give you a little bit of history here, um, Pilate, who was um, uh, running things in Rome, right, had, had heard that there was this insurrection uh, that, that was coming from the Jewish folks and that they were going take him down. And so his natural response was to go in an, at an unassuming time and deal with these Jews. And so what did he do? He did it during the church time. You, last place you think to be attacked is, right, Sunday morning or Saturday morning at church. And so Saturday morning in the synagogue, Pontius Pilate sent his men in and they killed a bunch of people while they were uh, performing their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, verse 2, he says, Do you think that these Galileans who got killed were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. No, 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 no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, 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 no. You got suffering all wrong. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? He's giving a lesson on suffering and how to stand fast in God's grace, right? Like how to understand and put suffering in its proper context. And if you don't do this, if you don't understand what Jesus is saying here, you will never handle suffering well. And he gives two parables, right? Not two parables, but he gives two stories. And he says, in the first one, he says, look, these Galileans were killed in the synagogue. He says, do you think you were worse sinners than all these Galileans because, you su because they suffered this way? He goes, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And then he says, 18 were in the pool of Siloam, and a tower fell and killed them. Do you think you were worse than them? He goes, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is essentially saying to them, look, do you think you're better than this person? Right? The self-righteous, moralistic perspective on suffering assumes that they're suffering because of what they did. And Jesus said, you think they suffer because you're better than them? He goes, no, never. In fact, just think about your life. If I gave you everything that you, you deserve, you wouldn't even stand stand foot in my presence, right? Like if God gave us what we deserve, how we act, how we think, everything that we've said, everything that we've done, there would be nobody standing in the universe. So he goes, no, God never gives us exactly what we deserve because what we deserve is hell. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is ongoing suffering. So he says, repent. Don't ever get so foolish that when a, when a family is raising a kid and one kid goes wayward, don't ever in your life assume that, that because your kids are on tack and loving God and theirs in that somehow you're better than them. Or don't think just because you're single and somebody else was single and now they love, now, they, uh, now they're married, don't think somehow that their life is together and yours wasn't and that's why you're single and they're not. Or don't think for a second because your business is falling apart and somebody else's business is flourishing, don't think for a second that because your life is intact, that's why your business is blowing up and theirs ain't. Don't go down that track, because if God gave any of us what we actually deserve, man. <laughs> it's the story of when a man was born blind and the disciples came to Jesus and said, who sinned? Right? This is, these people have been walking with Jesus, and they're saying this, there was a reason behind this. Right? All of us always assume that the other foot dropped. When the other foot dropped, there's a reason in my life that this happened. And Jesus said, no, 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 repent. Because if I really gave you what you really deserve, you wouldn't even got to church this morning. So repent of that thinking. But he also says this. <laughs> he uses the, he said, what about the 18 who died while in the pool of Siloam when the tower fell? He said, you think they deserved it and you didn't? He goes, no, 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 no. Just, just stop. Right? Like if I gave you what you deserve, what you deserve is not a tower to fall on your head. You need the universe to fall on your head. And so what does Jesus says? He goes, no, 
but repent. <laughs> no, I'm not punishing you, right? No, I'm not punishing you. No, I'm not giving you what you actually deserve. But then he says, what? He says, repent, lest you too perish. He's saying, but don't think for a second that you shouldn't get what you deserve. Don't think for a second that you shouldn't or don't deserve to have a tower drop on your head. And so God doesn't give you what you deserve, and yet at the same time, he says, don't ever think for a second that you don't deserve a tower to be dropped on your head. And when you walk in that tension between God not giving you what you deserve, and yet God at any moment could give you what you deserve, And it humbles you or withholds what you deserve. <laughs> and that humbles you. So when, it means, so when the scripture says stand fast in the grace of God, the grace of God is what? Grace is unmerited. It's based on nothing. It isn't conditioned on anything that you do. God gives you what you don't deserve. God withholds what you do deserve, which is a tower dropped on your head. So don't look at your business, your marriage, your, right, your singleness, your sinfulness, and assume that the more your life is cleaned up, the more blessings are going to fall from heaven. I have found sometimes in my life that God has been good in me or good to me when, I, when I'm at my spiritual worst. And when I'm at my spiritual best, man, sometimes everything falls apart in my life. I remember this one story and I'll close. I didn't get the gospel. And tonight at the leadership thing, we're going to unpack what that means truly. But I didn't get the gospel. And so when I read the scriptures, I would look at the Old Testament moralistically. And I'll never forget, there was a superstar NBA basketball player who just came to Oregon State a year behind me. A.C. Green was the face of Oregon State back in the late 80s. AC ends up going to the Lakers. He was a, you know, it was well publicized that he was a virgin. And he's one of the most godliest guys I had ever met in my entire life. So I just assume, put two and two together. Man, he was a McDonald's All-American. He got drafted by the Lakers. He was a virgin. He read his Bible. He resisted temptation. If I do that, <laughs> I'm going to the league. It all makes sense, doesn't it? And so off he goes to the Lakers, Showtime, 80s, Magic, Kareem. And I was the second leading scorer behind AC as a freshman, and he was a senior. So I'm the next man up. Well, in between my freshman and my sophomore year of college, you know, I'm training. I'm, I'd just gotten saved, and I'm, AC gave me the blueprint. <laughs> I give my life to Jesus. I'm loving the Lord. I come back for my sophomore season. This is my team now. 
They had a freshman that just came in. His name was Gary Payton. He's going to follow my lead. Gary was wild. Didn't love Jesus. I hope he loves Jesus now. But back then, he, was, he, he needed Jesus. He was, a, he was a crazy boy. Two weeks before the season starts, I blow out my knee and have to miss the whole year. And I come back the next year and injure my other knee. And I'm watching all my, I'm the only Christian at that time on my team, and I'm watching all my teammates party, getting high, chasing women, doing everything that athletes do at that time of their life. And I'm angry at God. Even during that time with my bad knees, I was walking around Gil Coliseum where we played. You know, I'd read about the children of Israel marching around Jericho seven times. <laughs> I had marched around Gil Coliseum seven times, and I came back the next year and blew out my other knee. <laughs> Not fully understanding the grace of God. Mad at him because I was thinking to myself, my life is purer than these guys. Why would you withhold this? Think of the testimony I could be like AC. To, and God said, no, I'm taking AC one way. I'm going to take you another way to be a witness. I'm going to take AC through success. I'm going to take you through failure. And I'm going to be glorified both ways. How are you going to handle success? Can God be glorified when your marriage blows up? And the rest of your friends' marriages seem intact. How do you handle your business and your finances when they blow up? And somebody that was far more devious, that was a co-worker, you maintained their job. Repent. Realize that God didn't drop, a, that every one of us deserved to have a tower dropped on our head. And yet God doesn't give us what we deserve. <laughs> Can we walk in that tension? That's what Jesus did, right? Scripture says in Hebrews 13, it was the joy set before him. He, he endured the cross on the one hand, it was joyous for him to, you know, he understood. And yet at the same time, it was preordained by God for him to go to the cross. This is what the communion table is all about. Vicious men, us, our sin, driving him to the cross, and yet God ordained it. God gave us what we deserved in him. And that's why we celebrate the communion table. When we take the bread and drink the wine, we, drink the wine, we, we celebrate that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He didn't drop the tower on our head. He doesn't punish us and give us what we actually deserve, and that is good news. Let us pray. Thank you for this book on suffering. May we stand firm in the grace of God. 
may we understand how it works in our life that you haven't dropped the tower on us. That you don't give us what we deserve because the communion table says your work is enough. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup from the cup, we're humbled by it. And so God, help us understand what it means to walk in grace when the enemy roars. In Jesus' name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.